Yes, uh, my name is Nathan. I'm the college pastor here at Crossroads. And, you know, my wife and I with our five children, we always, you know, sometimes hope that we'll get to first service. With five kids, we're not the family that's like up super early. So this is, this is where we land, second service. You guys are my people. It's so good to be with you this morning. If you're new to Crossroads, welcome. Uh, hopefully I'm not the first person that said good morning to you. But if so, know that we are grateful that you are here, that you are with us. And I just wanted to mention something right off the bat. If you've been at Crossroads for some amount of time, maybe you've heard this cultural value that we have. It's, it's this phrase, 90-10. And that really goes to the, the heart that we have and we believe Scripture speaks to, that 90% of what we do as followers of Christ happens outside of these walls, outside of this building, uh, in our spheres of influence, uh, with our families, with our friends, our coworkers. And obviously, a vast majority of our life happens there. Um, how we live out our faith is impactful for the kingdom of God. But also, the 10%, the 10 that happens here on a Sunday morning, we still value this uh, very much so as a community. Uh, this is not just a TED Talk, by the way, as much as I love TED Talks. Um, this is actually uh, something supernatural that happens. When we open up God's word, right, this is a rhythm and a liturgy that the people of God, the body of Christ, have been taking part of. They're taking part all around the world, but also for centuries. So we have the privilege and the opportunity to join with them, also following the mandate from Hebrews chapter 10 that we uh, should gather together to spur one another on toward love and good deeds and not give up the habit or the practice of joining together for the mutual edification, the encouragement of being together, of singing together. I can sing alone in my bathroom, but it doesn't sound anything like you all did this morning. Great encouragement. Colossians chapter 3 also says, Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. That certainly happened for me this morning. Uh, the word every week when we come and gather is open, the word of God, and we submit ourselves to it through the Holy Spirit's leading. Right? This Bible, the word of God, has the power to cut through the noise of our world, through the cacophony, through the, the distractions that we feel, our hardened hearts even. This is supernatural work that we get to take part of together. And so my prayer, as I say usually on Wednesday nights when we gather as, as the college ministry, is that my words would burn away and that you would be left with the words of God that would burn into your soul, that would cut, right, as Scripture says, dividing all the way to the very heart, that we would leave this morning convicted, encouraged, right, admonished. Anything that the Holy Spirit wants to do in us, that is my prayer. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, as we say usually every week, there are blue Bibles at some tables around. And I just felt led to say this in the first service, and I'll say it again. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't have one in your possession uh, at home or anywhere, and you would like a Bible, or maybe you have an app on your phone and you're just like, I'm tired of this app, and you just want a physical Bible and you don't have one, take one of them. I didn't get permission to say that, but I think it's okay. We'll just, <laughs> we'll just take it out of the college budget. It's fine. We'll just, you know, we'll just add some more. But we want you to have the Word of God with you in your hands. <clears throat> So, where are we in the story? We've been in the book of Mark for a long time. Uh, we took a little hiatus during the summer for spiritual practices, but we have been back in Mark this whole fall and into the winter. And namely, uh, we've also been in Mark 12 for the last several weeks. So would you open up your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 12. 
in at least this version of the Blue Bible, uh, it's on page 824, actually 825. Um, <clears throat> so if we look back at the chapter that we've been in for some time, there's a lot that has uh, been given to us, a lot of life that we've poured over, right? Rod's speaking of us being tenants, that we are not the owners of the vineyard <clears throat> that God has entrusted us to. Also rendering to God what is God's, namely our lives, because we bear the image of God, much like the denarius bore the image of Caesar. Anticipating the new heavens and the new earth in light of our earthly marriages and earthly relationships. And then finally, last week, uh, the Shema, which truly is, as we read, the greatest commandment, what? To love God with all your soul, your strength, your might, and also to love others as yourself. And so today, we actually get to read the last part of Jesus' public ministry before he truly turns to the intimacy of just speaking to his disciples, his beloved disciples, as the hour of his betrayal, his sham trial, and ultimately his death approaches. So we are in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 38 this morning, all the way through 44. Uh, so as customary here, we love to stand for the reading of God's word. So if you're able, would you stand with me? As we read Mark chapter 12. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at your banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Those are Jesus' words. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus then sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting, in, into, uh, putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. And calling his disciples to him, gathered around, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor woman has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Amen. You can grab a seat. Okay, so if you're like me, <clears throat> sometimes things bear repeating, really, for them to lodge in my mind. Uh, and so we're going to just take a second to remind ourselves the, the audience that we're dealing with in this passage. So we've learned that the Sadducees were specifically the, the uh, elite, wealthy, presiding priests over the temple and the sacrificial system. But actually not who uh, the, the text is speaking of this morning. This is actually directed towards teachers. Sometimes uh, your, um, your Bible might say teachers of the law, scribes, um, learned men dedicated to the study of Scripture. Uh, oftentimes, they made a living by preparing documents as scribes, preserving and copying Scripture. And I think it's helpful to know, we've heard the word Pharisee many times as well throughout Scripture. Scri <coughs> pardon me. Scribes were often associated with the sect of the Pharisees, but although not all Pharisees were scribes. So if you look actually at the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew describes this audience as having Pharisees present as well. So it is certainly a, <clears throat> a large variety of people, but all kind of seen as 
who Jesus is pointing at, these learned teachers, leaders, respected elders uh, in the community. So Mark makes it a point, right? He makes a point that the honor and respect that they received for their position was from the people, right? They were given this respect. So unless you were a tradesman in like the public square in the market, when a teacher of the law or a scribe would pass through, you would stand to show them honor and respect because they held an admirable position. They were respected among all the people, right? In Matthew, he places, like I said, scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the law, all together in Jesus's stinging critique. Watch out, he says. Your text might also say, beware. Why? If we look in verse 38 again, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor and banquets. He goes on. But the question, why is Jesus' rebuke so strong for these men? Who, from the perspective of Jesus' audience, right, those that are gathered to hear him, they seem to be duly receiving the honor of their position. Okay, so I want to ask you, when you envision teachers of the law, scribes, Pharisees, maybe even Sadducees, if you close your eyes and think, what, like, what comes to your mind uh, when you think of this group of leaders? Okay, you can open up your eyes. This is actually what comes to mind for me. We're going way back. This is uh, Hanna-Barbera, an animation studio that did a lot of stuff, I don't know, from the 50s on or whatever. But this is the greatest adventure Bible stories. I I think I watched all these episodes as a kid. I don't know if anybody else remembers this. But there's certainly a lot of problematic things with this, right? Uh, I think in this depiction, Jesus has blue eyes, you know. So anyways... But, like, this is a Pharisee. If you're watching it, this is, like, the, the episode. It's all about Easter. This is how they depict a Pharisee. And if you look at that, that is a villain. That right there is certainly a villain. No question uh, about it. But I wonder, as I've been reading through the text, wrestling with this this week, I wonder if actually perhaps we may project something upon these leaders and teachers of the law. Because, you know, what? we know the end, don't we? Right? We know how these men respond to Jesus, ultimately leading to his death. Because truly, as I grew up, I think I always had this picture in my mind that, that the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes, they were kind of this foaming at the mouth, holier than thou, haughty group of religious elitists, right? And certainly, there may have been some that were like that. We don't know for sure. But we also have pictures of men like Nicodemus, right, who seems to at least have some degree of humility, of a willingness to come, for whatever reason at night, people may speculate, to come and speak to Jesus, to ask honestly and plainly about what Jesus was all about. But the text tells us that these men truly were respected. If we look back, and you can turn with me if you want, into chapter 11, when the authority of Jesus is questioned uh, in verse, let's see, 32, right? They're they're speaking to each other, trying to answer this question that Jesus asks But they're they're actually fearful of the people, for everyone held John uh, as a prophet. They were fearful that they would lose their own respect among the people because they saw that Jesus was actually growing in praise and respect and honor of the people. They feared losing that very same honor. So maybe 
To a certain degree, we do project that these men were obviously uh, villains or, or ready to do away with Jesus. But from the perspective of the common Jew, they were honorable, right? These scribes and teachers of the law, their position was honored by the masses. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I struggle to, to give respect and honor uh, to someone who maybe I perceive to be arrogant or self-absorbed or egotistical, someone who is seeking their own honor. <clears throat> but could it be that to the onlooker, these leaders truly looked the part? They received what they felt was, or what the people felt they were worthy of, honor. But at the heart of it, there was a problem. And that problem was just that, the heart. So here comes Jesus. Well, he's been coming this whole time, uh, but here he is, and he shows up, and he does something that no one else can do. He can see the heart. He can see the heart. Here are these men, fearful of losing their positions of honor and respect and admiration. And Jesus says, it's actually not as it seems. I see something that you don't see. I see hidden motivations. I know why they wear those long robes. I know why they take the long route through the marketplace and walk slowly to be greeted as rabbi. I see their heart, and it has everything to do with themselves and has nothing to do with God. Look with me again, starting in verse 39. They have the utmost important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. So it's easy to get hung up on these words. I know for me it was. What is Mark speaking of? What is Jesus articulating here? And there's a few perspectives that scholars have. And most settle on the recognition that to his Jewish audience, the elevation and protection of the widow would have been commonplace practice and commonplace acceptance, that the widow should be taken care of, respected, right? That no one should take advantage of the widows in their midst or the orphan. Isaiah chapter 10, listen to this, says this. <clears throat> Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Even the New Testament speaks of this. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it reads, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. And it goes on to say, But there are a kind who worm their way into the homes and gain control over gullible women. These teachers of the law... Right, these rabbis, they oftentimes had separate work. We know Paul was a tent maker and a Pharisee. The scribes were teachers, but also they made money uh, working as a scribe. But much of their subsistence actually came from the gifts and the hospitality of the people. And so you can imagine these teachers of the law, they faced a temptation of leveraging their position, of manipulation, their positions of honor, the trust of the people, their status to ultimately take advantage of the most vulnerable, maybe without them even knowing it. <clears throat> because to give to these people, to give to these leaders, was certainly seen as an act of, or act of piety. And so that temptation was very real. And dare I say, I, I think there's a connection even to uh, 
our present day, those that maybe uh, tout religious understanding or, or uh, understanding the scriptures, not to get specific, but I can envision a, uh, listening to someone on the TV that might say, hey, if you just send in some money, I'm going to bless this handkerchief, I'm going to mail it back to you, right? And it's going to heal you. I mean, we laugh, but this is reality. But this idea of taking care of the most vulnerable, even my grandma, she, I mean, she gets scam calls on her phone all the time. She can't hear very well, so she usually doesn't really happen anything, but uh, it, it's still present today to take advantage of the most vulnerable. <clears throat> but these teachers of the law, Jesus sees their hearts, and he also sees their actions. So even if they are disguised under the pretense of ministry. Pastor Kent Hughes has this uh, short but powerful uh, quote. He says, God have mercy on us if piety is used as an avenue for gain. God have mercy on us if piety is used as an avenue for gain. So here's the deal. Jesus just got done affirming, yes, what is the greatest commandment? To love God. And then what? To love your neighbor. The very thing that the scribes, the teachers of the law are doing is the antithesis of what Jesus just affirmed. Rather than loving God, Jesus sees that they are ultimately just loving themselves. Rather than loving their neighbor, they are exploiting their neighbor. And we see that it takes Jesus to pull back the curtain to reveal what is really going on. Matthew, in his gospel, describes this same passage when describing these Pharisees, these, these teachers of the law, these scribes, as being white-washed tombs where the world sees and witnesses something pristine, worthy of honor, everything in order, but actually, truly, there is death inside. And this week, I'm just going to tell you, I saw this plainly. Pastors, elders, shepherds, scholars, bishops, reverends, ministers, those that are seen as places of honor and respect, with even in our church, we stand much closer to the scribes and the teachers of the law than we, maybe we realize. This is ultimately a critique, honestly, of me right in this very moment. Nathan, what are you doing up here? What is my motivation? Why am I up here? And I'll be honest, the temptation is very real. The temptation is very real to siphon off just a little bit of glory for myself. The truth is, I could be faking it. Rod could be faking it. Dan, Mike, any pastor maybe you know in this church could be faking it. And I think it's reasonable that we hear this warning that Jesus says they will be punished most severely. I've heard it said that it is right to question, hopefully in love, but to question and test the motives of anyone who stands on a stage, any platform. And so I just want to tell you, ask our wives how we treat them. Ask our kids how we treat them. Pay attention to how we live outside of this space and this platform. Watch out, Jesus says. But here's the deal, friends. It doesn't stop at this platform, this stage. We are very familiar with 1 Peter 
where we rightfully are called priests. We are all priests in this kingdom of God, to priest Christ among the nations, right? If we claim Jesus as our own Lord, we are carrying his banner and called to proclaim and declare the praises of God. So it reaches beyond just this platform because we live, we live in a world of platforms, right? Promising you your own kingdom. The more people you influence, the greater your renown, the more impact you are having, the more reposts, the more retweets, the more follows, the more respect, the honor, the seats of privilege. I want to be clear. Jesus, to have the influence, is not the issue that Jesus is pointing to, right? The platform not, is not necessarily the problem. All the followers, that's not necessarily the problem. What is the problem? The problem is the heart, yes. It's the heart. Why are you doing what you do? Who is getting the glory? I worked for many years as a wedding photographer before I came into ministry, and it's all about building your own kingdom. The more people that know Nathan and think Nathan is great at his job and want to hire Nathan, and it's just... And very quickly, you just drink that poison and think it's your kingdom. Whose kingdom are you building? If you claim Christ as your own, ask yourself that question. Because Jesus does not mince words. He does not mince words. Look with me back at the text, starting in verse 41. This is so beautiful. It's so life-giving. It's so freeing. Mark turns our attention, along with Jesus, to the woman who seemingly has no platform at all. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. You know, I was thinking about this. Had Jesus not been there that morning, would this have ever been known, what this widow was doing, what she was giving? Right? Would anyone have known the offering of this solitary, poor, contrite widow? Seemingly no power, seemingly no influence, and yet the eyes of Jesus fell upon her. It's powerful. I want to take a second and uh, remind us where we are in the story. Visuals are helpful for me. So we are uh, at the Temple Mount uh, in, as it says, the Court of the Women. That's where the Temple Treasury uh, was. Scholars believe uh, that the treasury was made up of 13 wooden boxes that had trumpet-like bronze funnels to guide all of the coins into the uh, the boxes. And they were placed at the colonnades in the Court of Women. And here's another picture of maybe what the... Uh, trumpet-like offering box might have looked like. So as you can see, uh, a narrow neck at the top, uh, cascading down to where all the money would be collected. Now remember, currency is coinage, right? So you're pouring in your your gifts into these horn-like receptacles, um, and you would certainly hear the cacophony and the noise of a very large gift, right? All of the coinage falling in. It's kind of like when you go to the store and you like bring your, what is it, coin star? What is that thing where you... It's like, ching, 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 ching. Maybe, uh, yeah. So anyways, uh, some scholars also believe that there's very specific reasoning for the narrowing of the, of the neck of the 
um, receptacle. One, to really uh, keep people from stealing. Can't really fit your hand down in there. Uh, but also, if you narrow the neck of uh, that trumpet-like thing, it's going to take longer to pour in all of your coins. So the time it takes to give your gift is elongated. So man, if you have a lot to give, it's just going to... It's going to take a long time, and everybody's going to hear it, right? <clears throat> it was to draw out the large gift, making sure that everyone knew what you were giving. <clears throat> so yes, as we're reading this, we see that the story now has, has extended on beyond these teachers of the law and the scribes, and now has come uh, to this, this common uh, widow. And really, as we see, it's not necessarily the, the scribes and the teachers that are giving their money. These are rich people, right, that threw in large amounts. So these are just the Jews that are present to give their offerings in the temple. <clears throat> Jesus sees it all. He sees the rich pouring it in, and now this widow, unnoticed by all but Jesus, giving without pomp and circumstance. It reminds me of, of Matthew 6, where Jesus says, let not your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give. Have you ever been in the seat that Jesus is sitting and you bear witness to something that happens that's unnoticeable or discreet or inconspicuous? I, there's a photo I really love and uh, it maybe gets at least to some degree at the heart of this. Have you seen this photo? I love this photo. It's so good. Okay, if you haven't seen it, look closely. Something is not like, someone is not like the rest. This dear woman, this is at like a premiere. I, in my short research of this photo, I think it's like a premiere for a Johnny Depp movie. But that doesn't matter. <laughs> it does not matter. This woman is fully present. No phone. Every single other person has got to capture it. And I've, I mean, that's me too. I'm definitely taking a picture of Johnny Depp if he's on the red carpet. But this woman is just fully there. She's just unnoticed by everyone else because she's just in the present moment, taking it in. And no one sees her because they're glued to their phone. They're glued to whoever the, you know, the famous person is. <clears throat> I have a personal story too regarding this, this opportunity to sit in a place where someone has done something uh, kind of under the radar for a long period of time or, or uh, without pomp and circumstance. My father is a, certainly a, um, a role model and a great hero to me. My parents raised, they were in group care for a while, but then they, we had uh, independent living. We had 60-plus uh, foster kids that came through our home growing up, and my parents probably won't tell you that, uh, um, but they faithfully lived that out. But also my dad was a counselor as I was growing up, and if you know anything about counseling, there's client privilege as far as legally you can't share what you're saying. Um, there's, you know, you need to have that confidentiality when you're meeting with your counselor. And it wasn't probably until my, probably my senior year of high school that I had a few friends that um, on their own volition came to me and said, hey, you don't know this, but my, or your father has been my counselor for the last six years. And it just was like, it was like profoundly humbling for me to hear that about my dad. Like, I never knew it. I certainly knew what he did for work, and I respected that it, it was private, but the fact that he poured out his life into these people's lives um, were, was a helper to them in their time of need in his role, um, it just helped me see that sometimes things that are done without any pomp, without any strings, without any fanfare, under the radar, um, maybe it's easier to test the motives, right, when we're in that place. Action's not done for notoriety. 
So back to the text. I think there's a detail here that we've all read, because we read it out loud, uh, but maybe we've, we've missed the, uh, the importance of it. It's easy to miss. So the widow's offering, it says that she gives everything she has, all that she has to live on. Two coins, two lepta, which is actually worth roughly 1 64th, they say, of a denarius, which in the time of Jesus would have been, one denarius would have been a day's wage, basically. So, uh, you know, a fraction of a day's wage was all that this woman had left to live on. But it's important to note that it's two coins. Because stop and think about this. If there had been one coin, what would her choice have been? The choice would have been to give that one coin all that she had and have nothing or to keep the coin for herself. And maybe some might feel like that would be a harder decision, but she has two coins. And to give one is still giving half of everything that she has. Half of everything that she has to live on. Surely that is enough. Half? But no, she gives everything. Both coins. She takes those two coins, and in the midst of the offerings being poured out, all of the noise, the quiet clink of just those two coins, would it have been heard? Would it even have been noticed? And this is good news, brothers and sisters. In the economy of God, it does not matter the amount. Because God doesn't need any of it. This widow, with an audience of only God, gave her life to him. And that amount, which made very little difference in the ledgers and the bookkeeping of the temple that day, has been forever remembered in the book of life. And this meets each and every one of us exactly where we need to be met this morning. It's an invitation for God to put his finger on that thing that's taking his rightful place. This example is an example of money. Is it money for you? Are you giving out of your abundance where the ledger shows you've been very generous by the standards of the world, but you know that it actually costs you very little? But maybe you have very little and by the standards of the world, but you cannot relinquish the little that you have because it feels like it costs too much. And for fear of losing the forest for the trees, I think Mark brings these two scenes together in a common thread, the scene of these religious leaders, these teachers, and this contrite widow. It's a powerful picture of the kingdom of God. It, it's about your heart. It's about your heart. No matter what you are doing, no matter what you are giving, I cannot hide from this, and you cannot hide from this. Because the eyes of Jesus fall upon each and every one of us. And it has, it has like so many implications, right? If you find yourself just as the widow, you can live a life without fanfare, in humility, in small, secret, unnoticed, unposed, unrecognized places. There's freedom there, right, to catch his gaze and his gaze alone in all that we do. And that's enough. And if we live our lives in the public square, as ultimately we all truly do, and if we claim Christ as priests, like the scribes, the teachers of the law, Mark makes it clear, watch out. Watch out for others, and also watch out for your own heart. What is the motivation of your heart? Sorry. 
What is the motivation of your heart? Do you need the praises of man? Nathan, do you relish the recognition of standing on this platform? Do I long for my name to be honored? Am I giving in to the temptation to siphon off just a little glory from myself? Jesus sees it. He sees it. The kingdom of God begins with the heart. The outworking of our lives will always, always be saturated in the conditions of our heart. This is why the measurement of the gift by the world standards means nothing to God. It matters nothing to him. Be it lavish, be it minuscule, the motivation of the heart is what God sees. And he desires a heart that is undivided. Undivided. This offers us conviction if our hearts have the self-serving motivations of recognition, respect, praise, power, money, influence, especially if everyone perceives that we're doing it for the right reasons. It also offers us encouragement when we may feel like we have no platform, we have no influence, we have no notoriety, no following, no resources, no gift. It doesn't matter in the upside-down kingdom of, the, of, the, of God where the minute offering of a wholehearted widow outshines the lavish giving of the wealthy with a divided heart. And this morning, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to take a seat beside Jesus. It's such a joy to say. Take a seat beside Jesus and bear witness to the kingdom of God in the hidden places in the humble places.